Welcome back to Cover Story. Today's episode is a special one, as I was able to talk with Jan Hayworth about her work on the cover for the Beatles' 1967 release, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Jan is a fine artist practicing across multiple mediums, and she takes us through her story of getting into art after initially resisting it, moving to England, meeting the Beatles, how she and Peter Blake work together with the Beatles on the concept and execution of the Sgt. Pepper's cover. She also shared her thoughts on the cover from a modern perspective. Uh, she discussed some of her recent work as well, which I've linked to in the show notes, and I highly recommend you check out. This was a dream cover and guest to have on the show, so big thanks to Jan for coming on and taking the time to share her story. There are a lot of behind-the-scenes details throughout, um, which I really think you'll find interesting, so I hope you enjoy. I grew up in Hollywood, um, and that sort of has affected, you know, everything I do, really, because I, I look through the lens of the camera, really, uh, because my father was in the film industry. Um, and was a production designer. So he was um, drawing and uh, creating sets and finding locations and uh, things of that sort. And I, so for some reason, he didn't seem to uh, follow the norm in that uh, he would take me everywhere. So I would go on these locations and uh, see his sets and watch the filming quite a lot. So I, I was on the set of Some Like It Hot and uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Sayonara and Longest Day and, you know, a whole bunch of stuff like that. And then my mother, all during this time, and when they separated, she went back to art school. So she was at the Jepson Art Institute um, at the same time as people like Maris Cole and Guy McCoy and some very interesting uh, painters. And uh, being California, uh, you know, none of us females knew we weren't equal. I mean, it, it felt like a very equal society at that time because the circles that we moved in um, were, you know, women costume designers and actresses and um, artists and immigration people from, I mean, immigrants from Germany who were, you know, had left uh, because of Hitler. And, uh, and you know, so my stepmother was a fashion designer. Uh, my mother was a full-time uh, self-supporting artist in ceramic business and in printmaking. So, you know, my, my world that I knew of um, was completely open for choice. And my parents were not saying, hey, you better be an accountant uh, because you need to earn a living. Uh, they assumed you could earn a living doing anything you wanted to, from beekeeping to fashion design to making jewelry or, you know, being a painter. So um, with those choices open to me, uh, I decided I didn't want to do art. <laughs> <laughs> I um I started at UCLA with a, ma- in a as a major in philosophy um and English um and then after the first year um decided to do art so it was kind of like a you know a breakdown I sort of thought not a real one but I just sort of thought well you know what I really want to do art <laughs> I discovered it. <laughs> so I can remember having a conversation with my mother and just saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to change my major. <laughs> and uh, of course, she just supported that. Um, so that was all kind of bubbling away in my head. And, and when when I went to Europe, I wasn't going to Europe, you know, to stay. I was going to see my dad who was working on um, The Longest Day and um, with the view in mind that I'd be coming back to UCLA um, as an art major. And um, so off I went by boat because I was a bit nervous about airplanes at that time. And uh, uh, and I just sort of um, fell into England, really, because I was on my way home. And I thought, you know, I'd like to see the source of my art history books 
to that point, um, which was the British Museum and the National Gallery and the Tate and so forth. And so I went there. And then, yeah, I mean, really within the first hours of being in England, I I thought, oh, I wonder what I can do to stay here and go to school here. Because I thought, you know, my grade average was good and I would just, all I'd have to do is go to whatever the universities and schools were and say, I'm here. <laughs> I have a good average in my grades. Um, let me in. Um, and of course, they didn't say that. The British, you know, apply like a year and a half in advance. And um, so it was, you know, different than I anticipated. But um, Central St. Martin's, uh, which was just the central at that time, the courthold and the Slade all said yes. Um, the central said evening classes you can do, and the courthold said you can do um, what they call certificate courses. So I started going to lectures there, and that was fabulous because Rainer Bannon was teaching at that time. Um, and uh, and then the Slade, I was able to get in as an external student, which meant that I did have all the rigors of having a tutor and having to have tutorials and so forth. And people sort of saying I should be in the light room and drawing uh, this and that. Um, but I I wasn't sort of getting credit. Um, so um, I, uh, you know, that was kind of a, a time that was, for me, I mean, the development I went through in the first six months there was just like really fast because um, I was really kind of ready for studio work at that point and uh the art history because it was right at your fingertips was just fascinating and and London at the time was was very full of energy. I happened to land in um the house of uh, Allison and Peter Smithson and they were the ones that launched the um exhibition uh This Is Tomorrow. Um and that was really the first kind of notion of of um I suppose the cognoscenti uh, pointing to popular culture and pop art because it was Richard Hamilton and uh, the Smithsons and Palazzi and then a photographer whose name I can't remember right now. Um, and uh, so that, you know, being going from the kind of California idiom of the film industry, which was packed into my head, um, and then, you know, finding, you know, this fast moving kind of. Um, intellectual culture in, in England that was so stimulating to me because, you know, the theater and the films and the, um, the music and everything was sort of boiling at that time fashion. Uh, Bacon uh, had just had his big retrospective at the Tate. Um, so it was, it was a very interesting time to land there. I mean, I, I always feel like I was sort of very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. I was in Hollywood um, seeing the film industry in the 40s and 50s and then in London in the 60s um, and then in Sundance in the 90s. Um, and it, all of those things to me are very key. Um, the last one is kind of bookending because that's the genesis of what I consider to be the really serious end of documentary filmmaking that Bob Redford uh, ignited. Um, so... So I think, um, yeah, I mean, uh, that's where I began. And, um, you know, the the idea of making sculpture um, in fabric just hit me like a bolt. I didn't know about Goldenberg's work at that point. And indeed, he was doing, um, at that point, he was actually still making the paper mache thing. So really, at the same month of the year in 62, I think uh, we both were making cloth sculptures for the first time. and. Um, Anyway, so, you know, I, I jumped into that and um, managed to get some work into the young contemporaries. And uh, from that, um, 
got my first show when I was like 21 um, in the ICA, um, which was just a huge coup for me. Um, and uh, it just went from there. Robert Fraser saw my work there, and then I was with his gallery, which really was the um, the beginning of um, the association that we introduced him to the Beatles. Later on, he recommended Peter and I to do the uh, work of us. So that's oh, that kind of that circle till 1967. <laughs> <laughs> sort of the first point of reference, I suppose, is that that we knew the Beatles when they were just first coming down from Liverpool to town. I guess it was their second concert in London, and we went with Bob Freeman, who did a lot of photographs of them, where the black turtleneck sweater ones are his. And he said, oh, this that great band is coming down from Liverpool and they're playing in Luton and uh, the lads don't know the clubs in London and they'd like somebody to take them around. Would you do that? And so Peter and I said, sure, you know, we'd uh, be fun. Um, and um, so we went to the concert and then afterwards uh, went back to their hotel with them and then uh, took them to a couple of places. So there was one funny incident that we went to the White Elephant and uh, it was the sort of chic club at the time and uh you know turned up at the door and the the um bouncer came out and said uh, are you members and we said no this is a group that uh, just performed in Luton and it's their first time in London uh going around the clubs and um you know we could we have a temporary membership or something you know um and they said he said no you have to join and we said, well, um, and tried to explain. We said, you know, they're, they're, they made a record. And at that point, um, inside, we could hear on the, the sound system, one of their records came up, Love, Love Me Do. And, um, and, and I suppose Ringo said, um, hey, that's our record. <laughs> and the bouncer said, you still can't come in. <laughs> Anyway, so we were kicked out of there and went to the Flamingo, which was very much a down market kind of club, but it had a little dance and it had some fun, and that was nice. And uh, then, uh, you know, Peter was in touch with them because he wanted to do a painting of them. And uh, so that went back and forth for a while. And then we introduced uh, Robert Fraser to the Beatles, and he became good friends. They were all kind of in the same sort of scene. Peter and I weren't really into the drug scene at all and so they were all hanging out and having fun um and so um then we uh i think i guess it was december Jan- january maybe january um robert uh called said could you come over to emi and have a look at the cover that has been suggested for the beatles next record and um we said sure we he said, you know, we'd like to have you look at it and see what you think. So we looked at it, and it, it was done by Simon Marazka, um, a Dutch couple who ran the Fool. And, well, they were called the Fool, and I think the shop they ran on Baker Street was called Fool, maybe? I think so. Um, and um, uh, it was really just, it, it was a highly developed rough, let's say. And because I think currently what is shown is like um, a double spread of uh, like a like a mural or something. Well, what we saw wasn't a double thread. It was just the normal uh, cover size, you know, twelve by twelve. And uh, it was like a mountain, and it had little sort of things flying around it. So it had had the look a little bit of a yellow submarine, and it had uh, you know kind of a feeling of gnomes, that kind of thing. Um, slightly cartoony, 
um, anyway, Robert hated it. We didn't know that, but he didn't like it. And I don't know what Paul's feelings were. And I don't know who supported it, whether it was George or, you know, so we didn't want to offend anybody. We didn't say anything highly negative. Um, but by the end of the conversation, Robert said to um, Paul, I think Jan and Peter should do the cover. So then uh, Paul came over with Robert to our studio and uh, we had a long conversation about, you know, our work and stuff like that. And uh, basically the cover as, as it was, was framed in that, that meeting. Um, Peter um, suggested a crowd. He had done, um, um, you know, the crowd scenes before in collage because it's an easy way to get a bunch of heads. You don't have to draw them all and just cut them out and, you know, mount them in, in, in rows. And, uh, so he'd done that before, and he also, in his teaching, had said to his students, uh, yeah, don't go to the life room, draw your heroes. And so he said to Paul, it would be nice if the uh, crowd was the people that you admire. Um, so if you all could make a list of the people you like, then um, you know we will cite photographs of those people and make uh, a collage of that. I didn't like the idea of a collage. I thought it'd be much more interesting to make a set, which is my lens, um, the idea of a life-size set that the Beatles walked into um, with life-size figures meant that, um, A, I could put my figures in it if, uh, you know, if we wanted the, the uh, back up a little bit. There's a movie conceit where that my father used a lot where you have two-dimensional cutout photographs and um, you can then, as you come forward, you bandage those 2D things with a 3D front row. So in my mind, it would be a life-size collage of photographs reproduced as my father did and tinted. Um, and then um, the front row would be 3D, which would be 3D figures. Um, and we pretty early on, I, even that evening, I'm not sure, but I think early on thought that if we could get Madame Tussauds figures, that would be great because they'd be as realistic as the Beatles were themselves. Mm -hmm. And um, if we couldn't, then we could use my figures. Um, so um, then the other part of the, the thing was I didn't want a graphic designer at the end of it to come in and stick lettering on. Um, so I suggested that the title of the album, as Owen oh, Beatles had said that they would be a band. Um, and that they would have instruments. So I suggested that there was a drum in front of them, and then on the drum would be the label, would be the title of the album, and then the Beatles could be done like a civic kind of uh, um, succulent install in front of them, so that their name was written in flowers. Um, Paul claims that that was his idea; it wasn't. Um, and um, the other part of it, there's a whole bunch of stuff that that Paul now believes he thought of which really isn't the case. Um, and um, it's just that kind of rewrite. I think that, you know, people tell stories over and over again and then they, they shift. Um, uh, but I, you know, and it could be as, I, I could be as guilty of that as, as anybody else, but I, my telling of it has been the same for the last 30, 40 years. So, <laughs> you know, the fact of the matter is it was, it was teamwork in a lot of ways. Um, when it came to building and designing the set um, and the concept, um, you know, the, the team was me and Peter to a certain extent. I mean, he didn't do the physical labor very much. Um, uh, and we always had a 
kind of joke between us. I was called Bert the Carpenter because he hated building stuff. Um, you know, he had to line up all the directions of the screws when he put screws into things. <laughs> and he couldn't stand dust and he didn't like his you know, any stain on his fingers. He didn't want to stain the photographs. <laughs> all those things. Um, and um, so, you know, I mean, building it was great and it was, you know, interesting. Um, we didn't take it overly seriously. It was a graphic design job that was, you know, kind of with our friends. And um, when the Grammy came along, I didn't, we didn't take any notice of it at all. I mean, I suppose we should have flown over to get it or something, but we didn't. <laughs> We just, you know, just it came in the mail kind of thing. And that's fine. Didn't pay much attention to it. And I didn't after that. I mean, I, I let the kids play with the Grammy in their little log cabin out in the garden. And um, it's in, in a lot of pieces. But I like it that way. You know, I mean, I think you know, that's good enough. <laughs> anyway, so, but I mean, other than that, there's, there's, some, there's some interesting outros there that I don't think anybody's really taken uh, seriously, I mean, a um, what about those photographs? I mean, we got permission to from May West and everybody living to use an image of their face on the cover, um, but we never got oh, not we Brian Epstein never got permission from the photographer who took the photograph of May West. I wonder, oh, you know, okay. about that that issue, um, which is kind of interesting. Um, and especially uh, that many photos, yeah, yeah, (laughs) quite. And so there's, there's that. And, um, you know, I never, I never signed off on giving permission to reproduce my work of art, i.e. the old lady in Shirley Temple, the temple, you know, Mm -hmm. forever. Um, but you know, good luck with, you know, doing Apple. (laughs) And then Michael Cooper, as you probably know, um, died, um, and the whole of the collection of his photographs was left to his son. Um, and um, when his son tried to um, do something with them, i.e., there was a beautiful book called um, Blinds and Shutters, um, App- Apple um, stepped in and said, uh, you, can't, you can't make money out of them, we own them. And he took them to court and won. Um, and then they took him on appeal and he couldn't fight it. So, oh, no. you know, he is in this remarkably unjust situation where yeah, having lost one his mother and way. yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, he lost his mom and his dad, the heroin, you know, oh, so wow. it's pretty tragic. And the other stat I think it's worth remembering, which is a sobering thought is of the people on the day that were there, um, how many met tragic ends? Mao, um, the bodyguard of the Beatles, was shot. Um, John was shot. Robert died of AIDS. Um, Michael died of a heroin overdose. Um, you know, so and George later, but but you know, that's a high price to pay for the uh, the excellence or the um, the height to which those young Icarus characters flew. You know? um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, to backtrack a little bit, um, uh, for those Madame Tussauds uh, sculptures that you're wax figures that you considered, uh, what was the holdup in or the obstacle in not being able to get those? 
Oh, um, they'd never, ever, and still don't um, let their figures be used in any other um, venue or context than the museum itself. Um, and so that was, um, you know, really down to a man called Peter Gattaker, who was the director at that time, uh, kind of pushed it through on our behalf. We had done work for him. Uh, I did a 48-foot giant for him at, uh, in the main two gods and various sculptures in um, Holland. And um, and so he um, he sort of guided that into being. Um, so um, you know that was that was super because it really did um, capture an odd feeling. I think to the, the whole thing, um, it gave a third leg to it. Had it all been photographed, it would have been one thing. And I wasn't entirely wanting my figures to be there, although I thought it would be fun if they were. But I, um, my figures are skewed to the side of reality. They're not. They're not. You know, kind of lifelike in the way that um, Tussauds figures are. So. That was um, a good breakthrough to have those there. Sure. And uh, can you touch on yeah. a bit about um, the faces that were chosen, any that um, weren't approved? Um, and I, I saw a bit about uh, your grandmother being in there as well. Uh-huh. Um, so I just kind of like, if you want to touch on, you know, how that process went, um, who made it, who, huh. how, how it was decided where yeah. to put whom, that sort of thing. Well, um, the... Um, the choices were supposed to be, as I mentioned earlier, that the Beatles chose their heroes. <clears throat> but the trouble was they came up with a very short list. <laughs> I don't know what that tells us. Um, <laughs> and um, anyway, um, so Peter and I really padded that out with the rest of them. So the Beatles chose just over a third, and we chose the rest. Um, and uh, so Americans are very well represented in the um, uh, the you know, the head you see there, uh, partly for that reason. Um, and um, the, I mean, some of the choices, uh, John, um, I mean, it's known uh, here, there, and everywhere that he chose um, Jesus Christ and Hitler uh, on his list. And um, Hitler made it as far as being cut out, which was, you know, ridiculous. Um, and uh, so we, we took that out. It was not um, you know, neither funny nor appropriate um and i i always think it would it's interesting to have a little thought experiment about that to think about uh what would have happened to that cover had hitler remained on it um and how it would be castigated uh, rather than celebrated at this point um yes. and uh and i'm afraid we would have carried the, the burden of that i mean nobody would have wanted to take credit for the cover under <laughs> <laughs> those circumstances everybody would have Fled. It wasn't me, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they'd be remembering the story a little differently, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so there's that. Um, and I can't remember the, the, the fate of Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I think that was probably Brian at the time. Somebody just said, nah, you can't do that. And Gandhi had to be taken out because um, uh, they thought that the um, Indian government would be offended. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, anyway, <laughs> the empire rules, you know. Um, so that was <laughs> that was all um, strange. And um, Leo Gorsi wanted some money when we asked uh, him for permission to use space. Um, so um, he, the, I think he wanted as much as Peter and I were paid, um, and that didn't seem to be appropriate. So 
we just erased him. Um, and I think that's all. Um, some people are covered up. Um, Jim Carrey, not Jim Carrey, Timothy Carrey um, is kind of covered up. And he has a gun, uh, which is kind of horrible. And it's pointing straight at John if he oh, wasn't wow. covered up. And it's just kind of odd. And there's a mistake on the cover, uh, which I've cited a couple of times um, that hadn't been mentioned much, um, that um, people often will say uh, the Sergeant Pepper's band and it's the Sergeant Pepper band um, because the, the um, Joe F. Grave, who did the drum, left the apostrophe out of Pepper's. It should be possessive. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, and uh, can you touch a bit on, on that drum skin? Um, yeah. How that, how that came about, how that was made. I know you said that you, you wanted to put that in there. Yeah. Well, um, the drum, um, the drum was done by Joe F. Grave. And, um, at the time, um, you know, little side, um, notion, uh, my, my father was in London making a film called Half Six and, and, um, he wanted to create a park and so forth. And, uh, I knew Joe very well. And, uh, my dad said he was looking for a, a merry-go-round um, uh, roundabout home. And, um, and I said, oh, gosh, well, Joe Grave can put you in touch with Beaches because he lives in Beaches Yard. And there's a fabulous uh, merry-go-round roundabout that they have. And I'm sure you could hire it because it's winter. It's not out on the road. And um, so Teddy was involved with that. And I went to see the set that he was doing. And uh, there were big, this gorgeous sort of... Um, a color photograph that was backlit and um, uh, to make a kind of park um, on the stage, soundstage. And uh, anyway, I said to my dad, um, you know, any suggestions for this, this cover we have coming up? And he said, uh, yeah, if you wanted to make it appear to be out, outdoors, you know, backlight it, do a backlit um, bunch of foliage and stuff like that. And well, we couldn't afford that. Um, but Teddy knew um, uh, the people who were of help to us, which was to get photographs blown up and cut out, because he had used that in other um, uh, instances, other films he's made in England. So he put me in touch with that um, um, kind of person. Um, Nigel, that's who this guy is. Nigel tells the story differently. Um, but um, I was, you know, out at, I can't remember if it was Shepherdson or Pinewood, but, um, you know, and my dad, um, just had all that kind of information. So, um, anyway, so that was, um, the kind of, um, kind of circle of, of Joe and my dad and myself and, and Joe had done uh, some wardrobe for me and for my mom. Um, and so, uh, when we had the meeting with Paul, uh, the wardrobe was in the same room. We were discussing the whole uh, concept of the cover. And so when I said, Hey, you can do the drum skin, uh, as the um, lettering for the album, and you could do it in fairground lettering. That man who did that wardrobe over there um, uh, is your man because uh, a he's very reasonable and extremely skilled. So I think he was paid twenty five uh, twenty five pounds, and um, uh, the thing that uh, kind of bad and aggravating is that um, the drumskin sold for one point million in a sale. Um, not so many years ago, um, as uh, and of course it's been reproduced, you know, a bajillion times. Mm-hmm. And I bet you anything you like, but Joe never signed any sure. <laughs> waiver for his artwork. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, lawsuits that didn't happen. Um, <laughs> but he's he's deceased now, I think. So. Okay. But we've we've tried to find his his kids because I they they came and you know came to my studio and stuff like that, um, and never been able to kind of trace the family. So a lot of people are looking for that family just to tell them the stories that they maybe are not aware of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be great if that could happen. Yeah. Um, were there yeah. any other any other props um, towards the bottom of the piece there um, that you want to have any you know interesting backstories to tell? Um, well, I gave I gave the little Indian figure away to somebody who liked <laughs> it, um, so that's gone. Um, <laughs> so <he has> that. <laughs> um, and uh, the gnomes, I think, were Peters, and uh, some of the other the television. I think was was um, Ringo. But Ringo doesn't remember that now, um, so I I don't know that may, maybe I'm misremembering that. Um, and what else? There was a little Buddha. There was a hookah. Hookah. Say that. And and um, what else is there? This, well, the Shirley Temple and my grandmother. Um, it, it, really, she's my great grandmother. Um, okay. And it was um, a figure I made when I was a student at the Slade. Um, and um, she, I didn't, my family wasn't here. So um, uh, I decided to make myself some flowers and um, an old lady who would be my grandmother and a dog. And <laughs> as soon as I kind of hit on the idea of doing things in cloth, it was just like damn burst of dreams. I just knew I could do anything. Um, so that's where she came from. So she was actually made in 1962. So, you know, predate. The stars you never cover by a number of years. Um, so she wasn't made for it. She was um, an existing sculpture um, and had shown various places. So, <clears throat> yeah, um, I think that's all about the kind of front that I can remember. The flowers were a mess. Actually, it was supposed they were supposed to be succulents. Which succulents are really tight to the ground, and there was a place very near where Peter and I lived uh, in Hammersmith that had a gorgeous kind of civic clock that was tilted um to face the road and that was what i had in mind when we first talked about it um and the the plants completely cover the dirt well on the day the guy shows up with hyacinths which stick straight up and you can't i mean they're they're perpendicular to the ground so if your ground is flat sloping that's weird which way does at an angle to the ground or what and so we had to try to make the the lettering out of those dumb hyacinths you know and it wasn't at all what I had in mind (laughs) anyway so that was a kind of glitch but somehow we made it work (laughs) was there much um, uh, discussion or disagreement on the final day with uh, these different hands involved uh, band included um, once everything finally came together here no, no, it's, um, how do you describe, um, well, I have a theory about England, um, England at the time, if there was any other accent other than BBC, you were either, um, a sort of upper class twit or you were, (laughs) or you were a working class person with a bad accent. Um, you know, so there the twain shall meet. So the midpoint was sort of BBC um, English. There were no people from Birmingham on BBC or Manchester or Liverpool or Scottish or anything like that. So it was all very kind of pure. So people 
with other accents were very clipped in their conversation. Nobody talked in paragraphs. It wasn't cool. They, they, that was kind of university behavior. So nobody did that. If you were cool, you didn't talk much. You sort of were silent and inscrutable. And um, I think it was defense mechanism because of accents. Um, however, that's just a theory. Um, and the Beatles, nor anybody else, People didn't react. They didn't kind of come in and say, oh, my God, that's so cool. I mean, they don't act like Americans who, who kind of go over the top. They show their feelings. They express, you know, excitement. The British don't do that. So neither were there compliments nor arguments, um, you know, that, that we just did what we did. And nobody said, hey, this is so cool. <laughs> nobody said, hey, this is really terrible. We just got on with it, and eventually it was there, and the Beatles came. And I, I'm sure there were conversations in private where people said, oh, I don't think so much of so-and-so, or, you know, why do we have to have those horrible waxworks? Or I'm sure somewhere along the line there might have been questions, but Peter and I never heard that. Um, and, and it just stumbled along in that kind of understated British way, you know. Um, so no arguments. Nothing much. There was a little bit of a contretemps between us and the person who um, put the photograph to bed, as it were. Um, and that was, you know, taking it from Michael to the printer, approving the plate, and then printing. And Peter wasn't very happy about that because he said he thought that the black plate was too heavy, that the original photograph was much brighter. and. Um, more circusy, and he didn't like the darkness of it. Um, I'd say that the darkness of it welded it together a little bit. Um, it made it look old, which took it into the nostalgic territory, which I'm not really fond of. But somehow it, it seemed to work that mutedness to me. Um, but that that wasn't a big deal. It was just a you know Peter being a little upset when it first was printed. I'd also like to hear. About your work since then um and i don't know when the best time to mix it in would be if it would be this with this scale of a project but um like i said before i'd love to hear your thoughts on um being a woman in the industry at the time how that mm-hmm. has changed over you know the 40 years mm-hmm. since then um mm-hmm. what state things are at now um however you yeah. want to tackle that well um the intervening time is is very long, so it's kind of hard to encapsulate that. But um, I, um, Peter and I divorced uh, at the end of the 70s, um, uh, and uh, I moved into a whole new situation of writing children's books with my then-to-be partner um, and um, doing the illustrations and so forth. Um, and so I, I jumped sideways. I was still doing visual art for, you know, in between on various projects, but, you know, raising um, two girls, and we bought a, a home in, that was an old farmhouse that um, was 17 years to restore. Um, so that was, you know, kind of project back to um, farming and writing children's books and doing a bit of art and trying to survive um, <laughs> financially, which was a real challenge. Um but I wasn't showing very much um, during the 80s. And then in the 90s, I showed with uh, Gimple Fee, and that was really wonderful because I was really kind of felt trapped in the children's book illustration area, area which I had been working in and 
doing book covers and things like that. Um, and uh, by that time, we had come to Sundance for the first time, and I was really, you know, wild pony let loose because it was so nice not to have an editor tell me what to do and also to have a whole new kind of um, sense of, of things that I wanted to do work about. And I kind of launched away from doing the cloth um, things to um, two-dimensional work. Um, and then eventually moved to Sundance. And, and again, that really for me was, was like going to London for the first time. It, it a lot of things kind of um, exploded uh, creatively for me. Um, I went in, to Sundance with the idea that I wanted to fuse um, pop art, uh, comic books, uh, quilt making, um, and use some that fusion to address the four classic kind of forms of uh, or the four classic concerns of painting, which is the landscape, the still life, the, the portrait, and the nude. I wanted to look at each of those things um, differently um, with the idea of um, patched canvases um, to do a big drawing and then cut the drawing up, use that as a pattern and patch um, both vinyl and, and um, painted canvas together. So the canvas is painted first, then sewn in, into a position in a, in a painting. Um, so that was breaking new ground. Um, again uh for me and i don't know of anybody before since who's done that um because there's a whole series of work in that area that are uh double layered um canvases um that you can look through the vinyl bits to another canvas behind so this kind of palimpsest of, of things going on um so that's a whole body of work and then um i also began doing some um, work that was on a larger scale. So I did a big mural called SLC Pepper, which was a riff on Sgt. Pepper uh, with the idea of making a correction because I felt that um, it needed uh, a critique uh, in 2003. It was chosen by Rolling Stone as the greatest album of all time. And I cautioned my, you know, lack of euphoria um, <laughs> to, uh, to, you know, say to myself, hey, it's not the cover it's the music that someone came along and said no they've done the cover as well as number one um so anyway that aside um i i you know was interested in the fact that of the shortcomings of the cover and looking at that to sort of say well um okay so um where does it fail well it fails in representation in terms of it doesn't really represent social activism it doesn't represent women uh 50 50 there's only 12 women on the cover um, and six of those are fictional women, um, and the rest are blondes, really. Um, and so, you know, Mae West, I think, uh, which is my choice, um, really is the only one that holds up, I think, as, as an intelligent woman who did not have to, well, did not rely on um, conventional beauty. Um, and um, so so I think, um, you know, it, it was due for a, um, a revamp, and certainly the ethnic diversity of the cover wasn't stellar. Um, uh, so, you know, we were, we were young and we were foolish and we didn't know our history well enough and all of that. So I, you know, I don't excuse it, but I think, um, I think, you know, it, it was a testimony to the level of thought at the time, which I don't think was terribly brilliant, um, in, in choices. Um, it was, it had some good choices, but, you know, some silly ones too. Um, so the SLC Pepper mural was, um, about 
30 odd feet long and about 28 feet high. And I did it as a community project. So about 33 artists or non-artists who worked on it using stencil um, uh, process with photographic reference, um, which was certainly, you know, current at that time. Um, and, um, and so that took me into another area. It was large like a set, um, but um, also um, terribly two-dimensional. <laughs> so I had challenges of you know, having things like scaffolds and stuff like that <laughs> to paint, <laughs> which is quite interesting. But, but that's continued. And um, most recently, uh, besides my own personal work, and I've, I've had um, 22 uh, solo shows, um, so in Europe and uh, I was in the Grand Palais art fair and all that stuff. So a lot of shows, a lot of a lot of group shows about pop art. Um, and just diverging from that a little bit, I can't say that I feel hard done by as a woman. I think I've been very, very, very fortunate, um, given what one now knows about the fact that you know there is a, a gender divide. Um, but in going back to this. Um, present i uh, we launched a big project uh in 2016 um which was to do a uh, a mural using the same conceit of a of a an audience um this time done uh with stencils um and it's a women's history mural called work in progress um and on that uh we are now up to 50 foot long and representing uh over 350 heads um oh, wow. And about about 200 plus people have worked on it, from you know women in the crisis units of YWCA to um, you know heads of companies, Morgan Stanley, uh, you know men and women from all walks of life have um, contributed to the mural. And about 95 percent are non-artists, so professors in of uh, astrophysics in BYU University, that sort of thing, <laughs> who've never done art in their lives and are scared to death and and liberty. My daughter and I just kind of um, shepherd them through the process, which is very forgiving, and uh, the mural is very beautiful. That's really cool. <laughs> so Where did you say that's located? Um, well, it it is now. Um, it was up at U of U, uh, uh, Utah State. Uh, sorry, um, it's traveled to eighteen venues in uh, nineteen months now, okay. and um, been at TED Women and so forth. It's not in the permanent location. It's up at the Leonardo Museum at the moment in vinyl form. We found that we could get it reproduced for like a thousand bucks. I mean, it's just really cheap. So yeah, we've been traveling yeah. it all over the place. It's been to Denver and San Francisco and Vienna and Paris yeah, and all over the place. Yeah, it is. It's really cool. So it uses the same idea that, you know, it's a crowd um, and it's a bunch of heads. So you don't have to do the body of everybody in the crowd, but you have to do the body of the front row. Um, but it's flat. So it's a, it's a um, Liberty does it as a, um, a collage. So a person does a stencil portrait um, using a photograph. They cut the photograph. Um, they cut the dark and then push paint through the holes that they've made. Um, and then... Libby, then it, they paint on a piece of paper, and then Libby cut, cuts that out and collages it all together. Okay. Um, so it's kind of interesting. She's Peter and my daughter. The process has now gone back to what Peter originally would have done as a collage, but he would have done a little small, stinky collage. Mm -hmm. um, she's using collage medium, 
and then I'm working with her. So it's a kind of wonderful fusion of yeah, of um, her father and me, and she's a product of us. And <laughs> it's a nice, it's a nice round end to the story. I think. <laughs> Once again, I want to thank Jan for taking the time to come on the show and talk about her story and her work. I've included links in the show notes for her work in progress mural, her recent work in a feature article on Artsy, her personal website, and the Modern West Fine Art website, which includes some of her work as well. I highly recommend you check all of those out to see what she's been up to. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy the show.